Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. With each of Regina Spector's eight albums, the Moscow-born singer has solidified her unique place in the pop pantheon. The classically trained pianist's talents were forged in Russia and blossomed in the Bronx. Her DIY explorations in the early aughts, Lower East Side indie rock scene, evolving into her current brand of widescreen, orchestral-embellished hits. Spectre's songs, which reveal slice-of-life truisms wrapped in fanciful storytelling, have won the singer an ardent fan base, not to mention powerful syncs from film and TV. She's lent her music to countless classics, from Girls to Grey's Anatomy, Sex Education to 500 Days of Summer, the opening of Orange is the New Black, the end credits of Bombshell, even the Hamilton mixtape. Her music is part of the fabric of pop culture. In June, Spectre returned with her first album in six years, Home Before and After, recorded at the height of the pandemic in a converted church just outside Woodstock, New York. And on Friday, she'll reissue her 2002 debut album, 1111, along with a box set of unreleased early recordings titled Papa's Bootlegs. Earlier this week, Fader contributor Kim Taylor Bennett caught up with Spectre, who, in conversation as in song, skips from one unexpected tangent to another. They discuss the nebulous nature of inspiration, what's revealed in her dad's bootleg camcorder archives, how the Me Too movement galvanized a reframing of the past, and what exactly the deal is with Regina Spectre Day. Ta-da, Regina. Hi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So wonderful to reconnect with you after, I can't even do the math, seven years? That was the last time we spoke, but that's not the last time I saw you play. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, am I trip? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the last time I think I saw you play was when you did this wonderfully intimate set at um, Rough Trade in, in Williamsburg, <gasps> R.I.P. Yeah. I get so bummed when great places like that just close. It just, uh, it, it hurts because I feel like something of New York gets less New York-y when things like that happen. It makes me pissed. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. And I know it's the nature of cities, you know, it's like constant evolution, but I, I definitely feel you, especially with the venues. It's, it feels a little heartbreaking. There's definitely evolution, but then I also feel like sometimes, you know, I guess kind of like in the same way that for humans, things tend to get out of hand and then you sort of start looking back like, where did it go wrong? You know, I always think about a posture. You can have like bad posture when you're a teenager and you're fine. And then at a certain point, if you don't, if you don't look out, you know, you can become bad postured adult and then you have all this like pain in your back and in your body. And then one day you can really grow and get old and you can't unbend because you have this hump and that hump started somewhere. I don't want to be one of those people who's like lamenting and is just like in this like nostalgia world. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I have to be vigilant like so that like my beloved city doesn't wake up one day and it doesn't know how it got there and all the artists, you know, can't function. And it's just like this. Yeah, and, and, and I know that there's really cool things happening all the time. So I think it's not there yet. But sometimes I get like, you know, very, very protective of New York. There has to be a balance of evolution and preservation. Exactly. I guess it's funny because I made this box set for like the 
20th anniversary of 1111, which was my first record that I made in college. And I, I had nothing from the era, you know, really, because it was like before camera phones and nobody was, you know, making demos of anything. If you were just broke and you just, you know, you weren't doing anything like that. And my dad had come to my earliest shows at college and downtown on the Lower East Side. And he just, with his camcorder, recorded them just for us, you know, just to have. He gave those to me when I was telling him that I just didn't have anything to even make like a special birthday re-release, you know, of the record. And I ended up making a whole, whole other like double LP for this box set out of those little bootlegs and it called Papa's Bootlegs. But it really has set my mind to that place where I've just been thinking a lot about that 1999 and 2000 and 2001 and 2002 New York and just how many places you could just walk in for free and see people play music. You could just sort of still be kind of broke and and still kind of live, you know, and make it. And it was hard. It's not like, uh, you know, I think that when the hardship passes, you know, you sort of get away from your memory and you sort of remember the good things. You know, it was very hard for me then. And I sort of keep trying to remind myself of the, that too, and not just be like, oh, it was so amazing. You know, I was broke and it was so romantic and it was so this and it was so that, you know, it's like, no, I was like, living on the subway, just nonstop, like five hours a day, working a really unpleasant day job that I was really not qualified for. That was really terrible. Okay, but back to, you know, the 20th anniversary of 11-11 and also Papa's bootlegs. When did he give you this footage? How long ago did you start kind of sifting through it? It was actually, so Jack had the idea. Jack, my husband, yes. He knew how sort of, I guess the word is conflicted I had been about this self-released record. I had this sort of strange relationship with it. I grew up sonically, like musically in the immigrant bubble, what I call it, which is like you live somewhere new, but you don't have the money to actually partake in things. So people were like, oh, you're from New York. You went to see Broadway shows. It's like, nope, I never saw a single Broadway show. Like not till I was like, a grown-up, and I got invited by actual Broadway people, you know, to to go see a show, you know. And I never had money to buy records. I didn't go to record stores, you know. I was sort of record company's worst nightmare because I, I lived in the time when people could burn CDs. And once I was in college, it was like my entire music education was the five people that would come and hear me play at the little campus corner where you play music. And like four of them would come up to me and they'd be like, oh, you know, this song that made me think of Tom Waits. And I would be like, who's that? And then they'd be like, oh, here you go. And they would just give me the next day a stack of all of his records burned and everything would just blow my mind and I would get an education. And then that, that happened to me with all of the musicians. But what happened was when I entered SUNY Purchase, I really had only been exposed to like classical music, classic rock, Soviet bard singers, and the few kids that sort of were like, you should sing songs, had made me like mixtapes of like, one was Ani DeFranco, 
One was Joni Mitchell mixtape. And that was about it. So when I got to purchase, it was the first time that I heard jazz and blues and I became obsessed. I didn't know how to play jazz. (laughs) I didn't know the chords, but I just loved it. So I started sort of trying to make my own version of that in the way that I could. That's why I started writing a bunch of acapella songs because I just didn't have the chords, but in my imagination, they had big bands under them playing these big band arrangements and all these things. And then by the time I had enough money to sort of ship it off to Canada and get that thousand CDs for a thousand bucks, they sent me a thousand shrink wrap CDs that I had to like store in my childhood bedroom in my parents' apartment, which is a nightmare. I basically was like living on boxes, in boxes. I couldn't give them away. It was just a nightmare. And by the time that I could make it, I'd moved on so much that I had that thing and I was, I sort of just been trying to put it into words recently. I feel like in general, when we move on from different stages of ourselves, we can sometimes accept the, the person that we were, or we sometimes kind of get like almost like disgusted and mad at the person that we were. But I think that when you're really young and you're creative and you're so burning on this path of like, I'm going to try to find my own self-expression. I'm going to try to find my own voice. I'm going to try to do something that's like really me. You're experiencing simultaneous, like you're super influenced and malleable and you're moving on so fast and the cycles pass really fast, you get so filled with embarrassment for the previous you and almost like shame. I would be playing my next songs. I'd be playing these shows downtown and I was broke, completely broke. And somebody would come up to me after the show and they'd be like, do you have like a CD I can buy, a record I can buy, anything? And I'd have a backpack that was so heavy full of these 1111 CDs. I just feel like you can't buy this because it's not going to sound like what I just played. (laughs) Well, well, just like when you were looking back through all this footage, what surprised you about some of the stuff that you were looking through? What did you see in this girl who was up on stage in this camcorder footage and play, you know, and playing these songs that, you know, you have had a conflictual relationship with? It was this amazing experience because at first, I started watching it and I was like, oh, there's nothing here. I I can't do this, you know. And then Jack, in his wisdom and kindness, was like, well, just try it again. Just remember, like, this is not, you're you're listening now. You've made, like, records. You've lived all this life. Just try to think of it as, like, this is a teenager starting to write songs. Like, try to listen from that place. And I tried again. And as I listened... Basically, what I realized was, first of all, I didn't remember any of the songs that would start. They had completely been erased from my mind. So they had gone completely like, it's not like, oh, yeah, that one. Like, I didn't know what word was coming next. It was just vaguely started to come back. Like once I I would listen to it once, then the next time that I would listen to it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I sort of vaguely remember that. And I started finding things of value in it. And then I was like, wait a minute, like this girl is like so free and experimenting with whatever all the time. It was like a combination of like forgiveness and appreciation where I was like, she worked so hard. She was obsessed with songwriting. She spent all of her time 
writing songs or trying things or working on music. It was like, she's the reason I actually like get to make music like in my life in a way that write songs because there's like a few reasons. One of them is that I got taught piano, you know, and I had the, that. And the other is that she decided to write songs and she like really, really stuck with it till they didn't suck. And a clock still strikes midnight and noon and a sun still rises and so does the moon but still migrate south and people move on even though I'm no longer in your arms I thought the mountains would crumble and the rivers would bend but but I thought all wrong the world did not end we should talk about your new record, not just the 20th anniversary of 11-11. You recorded this record, Home Before and After, in this church, you know, in the pandemic. I know you were supposed to start recording April 2020. And then when did you actually get into the studio? I didn't see any humans outside of my most immediate family for the most part during COVID because I was supposed to start recording the record in April with John Congleton in New York at Electric Ladyland. We had it all booked. <laughs> it was all happening. And I remember having a phone call with John when, you know, it was an interesting thing with this pandemic. I mean, besides the fact that half of the people didn't think it was real and some still don't. But we in New York, we got super hit very early on. So even when I was talking to people in other parts of the country, like John was in LA and he was in all seriousness was like, Oh, I think I could still come. I feel comfortable with it. And I was already like seeing the numbers. I'm like, trust me, you don't like, it's not, this is not going to happen. And what happened was it coincided with basically me being pregnant. So I sort of made peace with the fact that I wasn't going to get to make the record at all for like years. And then Jack, he was online and he was like, there's this studio not far from where we're staying because we also ran away to hide. And he was like, let's just see if maybe they have, because at that point I was just sort of wanting to just play piano, like play a real piano. I, I just was like, I'm going to just go crazy. If I don't sometimes play a real piano and sort of write a little bit and practice a little bit and just be a human person, <laughs> a musician. And so so we reached out and just like everything else, they everything had stopped and they were absolutely empty. And they said, oh, you can come and practice. I would just come in and I would just be totally alone in there with a piano in this huge church. So I felt like, I mean, I was like, that's as, as, as big a place <laughs> where you could be like, okay, nobody's breathing on anybody. I'm the only one in this huge church that's designed for an entire congregation. And I am here, just me. And I would just sort of play. And as I played, I started to be like, wait a minute. I finished some more songs. 
And it got to this place where I was like, there's no way to to make a record. And John, we would keep in touch and he would say, no, you know, you, you don't understand. Like everybody makes records remotely. People send me voice memos and are like, turn this into a banger. But to me, it was like, I couldn't stretch my imagination because I'm just so used to doing it how I do it. It's usually me and a producer and oftentimes a new person so that we have this new experience. And it's very like intimate, hands-on, in the space, all the time together. But then we were like, well, let's try and just get some takes. And the thing is that I always do feel like if you can capture sort of like the take, the heart of the song, then you could build on that in whatever way. If it's there, And if it's not, then it doesn't matter what you do. It's just not there. Once I started being able to capture these songs and really feel like, oh, this feels real. And John was so amazing at working remotely. And he was so patient because we worked deeply. In that way, doing it remotely like that is tedious. But he was so in it. And then we brought Jarek on who who did all of the arrangements and it was just a crazy way to make the record i mean you know we we did all these orchestral arrangements also remotely like sending stuff back and forth to each other and talking about it and it's just like you know they they there's like that famous quote remember like talking about music is like dancing about architecture and it's just like but we danced about architecture like from morning to night it actually got us places it was interesting. Like I, language is kind of healing. Like I do understand why people do like talk therapy and all that because you can figure stuff out. Let the ones who want it bad get all the things that make them better. Let the ones who don't care feel through. huge you know from the jump from the very first song becoming all alone and I actually wrote down that the instrumental bridge feels super Danny Elfman which also kind of <laughs> you know and then you've got space time fairy tale which is just like a casual nine minute epic and coin has this like vast maximalist chorus with these thwacking drums it feels just so cinematic in in the best way but I wanted to talk specifically about one song. You know, I love that you that your songs are storytelling in the purest form. And there's, of course, slivers of you in there all over the place. But, you know, that your songs are not confessionals. And so when I listen to One Man's Prayer, you know, that is very much from a uniquely male perspective and a very particular kind of male perspective. And I was curious about, you know, what was the jumping off point for, for that song and what was the kernel of inspiration there? That song, it's such a specific mindset of a very specific kind of man. 
there are so many of them at the same time. Like he's not unique in any way. One of my worries, <laughs> many worries, besides be like, you know, whatever, making the same song over and over, things like that, is putting too much agenda into art. I know that it works a lot for a lot of people and they do it like that. I mean, there's an entire genre of activist art. That's all agenda. But to me, I actually think that art serves its most like medicinal purpose, <laughs> maybe where it like actually maybe can change something or, or awaken something or bring something in when it comes from a place with uh, less agenda and more inspiration. So when you're inspired, you're not really thinking about something and you're not molding something to your own will. That's more like craft. I think that if you're trying to write something and you're sort of exploring, you're pulling on a thread, then whatever comes, comes. And you might not like it because you might not even agree with it. Or you might not even want it out there, but you're sort of like in the role of, well, I'm the artist and this is what, this is what I wrote. And I'm putting it out there with the faith that there's something useful in it because maybe I wrote it because somewhere in my subconscious and in the collective unconscious and in the sort of the moment of time, this is useful. And maybe it'll be useful in a hundred years, or maybe it was useful 25 years ago and I missed my moment, but I did it. And I think that the other kind of art, which is like with a lot of agenda is propaganda. You know, because that's what propaganda is. Like, you make propaganda films, you make propaganda songs. I mean, I come from Soviet Union, the land of propaganda art. I know what it sounds like. I know what it looks like. Every once in a while, you can have propaganda art that's amazing. But it's like once in a blue moon. And usually it's because the person who's making it accidentally put unconscious, deep, soulful things into it. And they revealed something about themselves that they didn't mean to. And somehow everybody let it go because there's enough ideology there to let it be masked, you know. And then we all feel feelings for it. I think that, you know, if I was to look for like the ancestral threads of that song, like, so that's what I could find. Like I could sometimes be like, oh, maybe I read that book when I was 15. And then I met this woman and she told me her story when I was 17, and then this experience happened to me in my 20s a bunch, and boom comes a song. But I definitely think that probably one of the things that happened was that when the Me Too movement happened, it sort of threw this lens for me onto things. And I sort of looked at my own life a little bit anew with this lens. And I think it did happen to women and men, both, where they were like, was that, was I, was this, did he, you know? I guess for context, like we didn't even really talk about what this song or what this man is in, in this song. Like, could you elucidate for the listeners if they haven't heard it yet? The way I would describe it is it's this experience of this person and this is kind of something that I'm very interested in in life. I'm always interested in like how people perceive themselves and then what they actually do. Right now, we are, we're kind of living in the era of the anti-hero and everybody cheers for the anti-hero. And 
we kind of live in a way where people can explain their cruelty or their entitlement or other things away because maybe they're victims of other things. It's the sort of that hero of the story syndrome. It's kind of like that where we started, that analogy of the posture. Where does it go wrong? Where somebody starts out with good intentions, but then maybe they really make bad choices and do kind of bad things for 20 years. But in their mind, you know, they're just that young kid who just wants to have a good life and wants to live well and and be liked and do well, but except that they have left a trail of damage behind them. So when does that person who has good intentions wake up and actually say, wait a minute, I think of myself as a good person because I'm the hero of my own story, but I'm actually a really bad guy, you know, or I'm a bad woman. I'm a bad person, you know, just wake up and be like, oh my God, I think of myself as good because we all do, but am I bad? That moment doesn't happen for most people, especially if they are that person who will go and do damage and they'll keep being like, well, she was crazy or, you know, he's fucked up or they deserved it or, well, I had to do it because what was I going to do? I was going to lose my job, you know, and, 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 And cut to, it's like, I was just taking orders. Because I was thinking about it, you know, this has nothing to do with the song now because we we departed. But, you know, I was thinking about the people that were putting kids in cages at the border. I was thinking like, you know, I came here as a refugee, you know, to the United States. Like that, I, I went to the same status. And that one stroke of a pen could make your life one way or a different way. And I kept thinking, like, well, how do they do it? Like, I kept trying to figure out excuses. Like, well, you know, they have an ailing father. And if they lose their insurance, then their father's treatments go. And I was like, I bet each person who's now taken a child screaming, crying from their parent and put them in a fucking cage has some excuse for themselves. They're the hero of their story. They don't go to sleep thinking, I'm a bad person. And I think that this guy in the song, he is that guy who, in his mind, is a good guy. Even at the end, he is, like, justified, and he just wants the best for himself. (laughs) He deserves it. He deserves it because he wants it. That feeling of wanting something, of needing something, it's powerful. And it's motivating. And for some people, their idea that you could feel that much feeling, right? And you could want something that much. And you could need it that much. But you're not going to be given it. It's almost unfathomable to them. Because they're like, but I feel this much. And that's the insanity sort of of, of, of us being these creatures at the mercy of the unconscious. Because then the more we can gently bring things to consciousness with either humor or with a portrait of some kind, with something that just maybe can just show a glimpse of it, you know, like a tiny glimpse of it for a moment, then maybe like the same as you said that everybody reframed their whole life with this new narrative and kind of tried to find their history in this new way. Maybe they can look at their life and be like, wait a minute, am I this person who walks around the world 
thinking they deserve things. I don't care what she thinks, just think of me. Cause if I won't get to meet God, and I won't get to be a God, then at least God let me get talked to by a girl. This is what I want. This is what I need. If I ask real nice, will you give her to me? If I just say please, this is what I need. But if I can't have Okay, I'm gonna like leave five minutes left. So I'm gonna pivot real quick from this dark ass place that we've like landed on. How did we get here? Let's let's end on sunflowers and Disney characters. I know. Well, we're gonna we're actually gonna land on your Bronx Walk of Fame. Yeah, and the fact that you know Bill de Blasio mayor declared June 11th Regina Specter Day. So like, what are we supposed to do on Regina Specter Day? <laughs> How do we observe this day? How do we give thanks? Like, what do you do? Does Jack like massage your feet? Like, how should how should we go about Regina Spectre Day? I mean, I for next year, I just want to know. <laughs> well, first of all, just to correct this, because I, I love your version of Regina Spectre Day because it's like every year, but no, it was just June eleventh of twenty nineteen was Regina Spectre Day. It was one day, it came and went. It was magical. I, I loved it. It was it was really, really special. Like all fun parties, it ended up like in the kitchen of Gracie Mansion with like everybody just taking doing shots and eating whatever leftovers. And it was just so fun. Talk about goals. Like I never pictured like any kind of fancy. <laughs> things like from my music you know because I write strange little songs some of them are strange big songs I I'm an outsider by nature so in moments like that when I'm invited so in into the most in 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 I my mind is always blown when I got to go and play for the Obamas at the White House and I brought my parents and it was just this thing of like they're like these kind of like, they're like these like immigrant storybook moments. And they just feel so like it's almost too much for me. It almost feels too much for my heart. Like, cause it, I just feel that American dreamness of it all. It's so huge. If you kind of think differently and you're a kid and you're sort of a little bit of a dreamer and you kind of have a hard time concentrating in school. And the things that maybe you're good at are not really that valued, you know, that much uh, by, you know, maybe outside of your family. It's not like your math teacher is like so excited that you're practicing piano, you know what I mean? Or like, or that you're like, you know, that you're like reading a lot of books. And then, you know, being an immigrant, then I was just like really an outsider. It took me a while to learn the language and to just kind of, and I think, I think that there's some part of me that's, forever in my own self-image I guess was is forever cemented as like this kind of like a little bit of a loner a little bit of an outsider and a little bit of a quiet like sort of observer and not the center of of things and I think that those moments like when I got especially having a day in New York City you know declared by the mayor and having like 
you know, getting to be on Broadway, you know, and I or like having the Bronx walk of fame. I mean, the Bronx, that's like, I'm like, yes, you know, that was like, in some ways even bigger, because it's just like such home home, like my, my Bronxy, you know, I think that it, it just makes me feel like, I don't know, like that thing of like, I got invited. I'm accepted. You know, it's just this little, this tiny little voice inside is just like, oh, like everybody did come to my birthday party. (laughs) So to answer you, like there's no big celebration of any of it. Like, and it's not like, you know, it's funny. We have like all these fun over the years accumulated now plaques and and glass things and, and, you know, this kind of an award and this kind of a presentation and, and they're all, they have gold on them and they have a date and they're signed and they're official and they're nice and they're all sitting very safe in storage because, you know, I've been in places where people just, they hang it all up, they put it on shelves and it makes them happy. I'm, I'm not that person. It makes me happy to, to, to have gotten it. And it makes me happy to know that it's sitting in a nice dark storage, but it definitely internally gives me this beautiful feeling of, oh, I was, I was invited. <laughs> that was Regina Spector talking to Kim Taylor Bennett. Regina Spector's new album, Home Before and After, is out now via Sire and Warner Records. Papa's Bootlegs and the reissue of 11.11 are both out this Friday, August 26. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross. The associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, AMP. You can download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.